When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. We need to make sure that for the people who are connected to the world, that it's the web they want, it's the web that allows them to produce the world they want and fix a lot of the huge number of things, issues we have with the existing web. You're listening to the voice of Sir Tim Berners-Lee. You know, the man who invented the World Wide Web. As you'd expect for a digital culture podcast, this isn't the first time we've mentioned him. In fact, it was only back in September that we looked at how his vision for how the web would help to create a more democratic society hadn't really gone to plan. At the start of this week, Berners-Lee himself confirmed our suspicions when he spoke at the opening ceremony of this year's Web Summit in Lisbon. So, fix one half of the world and fix the other half of the world. But how are we going to do that? Okay, so of course, the inventor of the World Wide Web is bound to draw crowds, but Berners-Lee was there with a purpose. He wants to save the web, and he wants us to help. A contract for the web... The World Wide Web Foundation, founded by Berners-Lee, recently published what he calls the Magna Carta for the Web. Contract is about different parties coming together from different angles. It calls on governments, companies and individuals like you and me to back this contract and by doing so promise to protect the rights of people on the internet and help to create a better web. We've got various principles which we feel... It's an ambitious goal, but if successful, Berners-Lee believes it will help the people hold the powerful that is, governments and big tech, to account. Which, he believes, is something we urgently need. And he's not the only one. At the end of October 2018, thousands of internet lovers, and probably a few sceptics, descended on London for the annual Mozilla Festival, or MozFest. There were art exhibitions, games and panel discussions, all aiming to generate ideas for a healthier internet. But is this achievable? Can we really convince those in control of strict regimes to allow their citizens freedom of the internet? I don't think any government or any political sphere would want to limit their citizens' access to information if they had nothing to hide. And I think there are some things that the government would like to hide. And I think the most pressing thing right now is related to corruption and money and the economy. And even if we succeeded, even if every government and tech firm jumped on board and made it their mission to save the online world, can we ever convince those who have become disillusioned with the internet to trust it again? 
how do we teach everyone online to understand how they can use the internet and how it can use them? There's such a wealth of data just about you out there already. Um, and if you hear every few months um, about scandals that you know data has been hacked, um, I feel like it really discourages you to even care about this topic. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this week we look at how to start this web revolution. This is Chips with Everything. Today, the US is unleashing a series of punitive measures on Iran, hitting its financial sector and, of course, its oil exports. Iran is suffering right now. A new set of sanctions imposed by the Trump administration earlier this week looks set to make their already dire economic situation even worse. So I was actually born in Canada to Iranian parents, but I grew up going back and forth between Iran, Belgium, Taiwan and Canada. Masa Ali Mardani is an internet researcher at Oxford's Internet Institute, focusing on freedom of expression and access to information online in Iran. She also works with the British human rights organisation Article 19. She was at MozFest to speak on a panel about data in oppressive regimes. I work with my name and um, I'm pretty public about the things that I do. And so I'm, I don't hold back in being critical of Iran and its policies and laws. And I think that means I've limited my ability to actually go back to Iran and see my family because I've made that choice because that space for freedom of expression doesn't really exist there. My producer Danielle recently sat down with Marsa in our London studio. Although she has chosen not to go back to Iran, due in part to a string of security threats, we were interested to hear more about what life is like there. Well, life is pretty ordinary if you aren't engaging in political activism and um, you're not really coming up against the different uh, rights issues that exist there. But in terms of communication, the things I've always noticed when I had gone back to Iran, which I've now stopped doing for security reasons, is finding the best VPN and finding the best circumvention tool that's trending and finding ways, uh, sneaky ways to get them because obviously the app store for iPhones at least is blocked. And so always these challenges and hurdles to finding access to a open internet. These days, when citizens want to protest, they turn to the internet and social media to organize. In Iran, it isn't that easy. Access to the internet is strictly regimented, and consequently, discrimination is rife. If you are from a socioeconomic context where you don't necessarily have access to the same resources that someone more privileged would have, you would probably just give in to the government options and say, the app that's very popular in Iran, Telegram. The government decides to censor Telegram. You don't really have the resources to find the workarounds to get to it. You're probably just going to use the government option. So for listeners who don't know what it is, what is Telegram? So Telegram is this um, chat application which I think if you talk to most people uh, in the West or outside of Iran, they think Telegram is just another version of WhatsApp. It was created by um, the founders of vContact, which was the Russian version of Facebook. And so that was supposed to not be penetrated or accessible to governments like Russia. 
Telegram soon became a vital tool for citizens, who were now able to get their news from sources previously banned by the Iranian government or judiciary. The thing that was really interesting about it was that you had websites that were blocked inside of Iran. So you had BBC Persian that was blocked inside of Iran, but Telegram wasn't blocked. And so BBC Persian has a Telegram channel with a huge following. So it was super um, accessible. There wasn't that extra hurdle of finding the satellite dish to watch BBC Persian or finding the VPN to access BBC Persian content. It was very conducive to the Iranian environment and for chatting. They had really cool Persian stickers and it was just, it was fun and it was perfectly suited for the Iranian environment. And so it became huge. As you can imagine, this ruffled the feathers of a few government officials who were trying to control what people saw. And an outright ban for Telegram was ordered. The order came from the judiciary, which is quite conservative and traditional in Iran. And when the order came out, they listed a bunch of different reasons. The main issue was national security. Activist videos from the last six days show wounded demonstrators. So first of all, you had the protests in January. Protesters in the capital chanting death to the dictator. The protests in January were organized in response to the government's publishing of the draft budget. Protesters were angry with where the country's money was being spent and were questioning the Iranian financial system. So the National Security Council of Iran blocked access to Telegram and Iranians tried to get around it. But as Masa explains, the way in which people tried to ignore the ban just raised more issues. So the difference is that most people are now using some sort of circumvention tool. And so the circumvention tool could be um, a virtual private network. A virtual private network creates a safe and encrypted connection over a less secure network like the internet. This is also a concern, and even the government has um, voiced this concern over malicious VPNs being put out. So Iranians now face a situation in which their once most trusted app has now become mired in mistrust on both sides. This has been a huge concern for those fighting for democracy in Iran. I think the internet is full of a lot of junk and there is a lot of misinformation, not only from the Iranian government, which I think most Iranians are really kind of aware to be skeptical of, but there's also a lot coming from other sources that that want to shape the political sphere of Iran and the Iranian people. But yeah, it's it's a interesting time. Do you trust the internet anywhere? No, <laughs> I definitely don't trust the internet. I, I try to limit my access to as many platforms as possible and try to like be the curator of my own information as much as possible and be critical of it whenever I read it. So considering that Masa, an internet researcher, doesn't trust the internet, what does she think needs to be done to regain the people's trust? I think the best antidote right now would just be more education and awareness amongst users. And I don't trust the companies and the governments to actually do the right thing. But I do think ordinary people can better empower themselves to understand and themselves do the right thing. After the break, we'll talk to someone who is trying to make Masa's suggestion a reality, teaching internet users how best to keep their data safe. And she's doing it with a board game. So we had players in this game who were users and who were trackers. 
and they had different sets of、um, goals and challenges and missions to accomplish to basically survive online. We'll be right back. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to thirty percent at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish; they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get fifteen percent off your first order at burrow.com/acast. That's fifteen percent off at burrow.com/acast. Today in Focus is a new Guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday. You'll join me, Anushka Astana, talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. Jordan, did you ever play Monopoly as a kid? I did play Monopoly. Welcome back to Chips with Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Yeah, I played too, but I didn't. I didn't know why it was made. Did you? I actually did, but this is because I run in game circles. So I've read a couple of articles about the fact that Monopoly was invented by a woman, and she didn't get any of the credit. But that's kind of forgotten. Yeah, she was a Georgist. Her name was Elizabeth McGee, and she created it to kind of. Teach people about the Georgist way of economy and introduce this idea of a taxation system. Did you get any of that when you were playing, though? Definitely not. But possibly because my preferred version of Monopoly as a kid was the Pokemon-branded Monopoly, which I don't think has very much to do with Georgism. Okay, so maybe you didn't know exactly where the idea came from, but it is interesting that you knew because it was a game designer who decided to. Explain a fundamentally difficult issue through a board game, right?、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's obviously something I'm super into as someone who studies like a lot of game design through my work. Like I'm really interested in the idea of people using game design to teach people things. Well, lucky for you, Elizabeth McGee wasn't the only person who thought of this idea. Yeah, so I'm Hang Dotiduk, and I'm broadly, I would say, a design technologist who. Designs and codes,、um, media and tools to kind of provide people a different perspective on、um, privacy and security online. We talked to Hang, who's based in Berlin, via Skype. So I think what's important about my work is that people feel it's interesting to also care about,、um, you know, privacy online. So I mean, we talk about, for example,、uh, this project, Public by Default. Public by Default. This is one of the creepiest digital projects to come out in the last few years, and proved just how apathetic we are with our data. If you use Venmo and you haven't heard about Public by Default, listen up. So Venmo is a、uh, 
financial transaction app, and people, friends, they can just share dinner and then easily pay each other on the app. Um, but the weird, um, or to most people, weird um, feature that they have is a public feed. So by default, if you don't change any of your privacy settings, all your transactions were public. So in my research, I just Googled really um, about the, if there's an API. and if API, that's Application Programming Interface. It allows a piece of software to interact with another piece of software. If, like most people, you didn't realize that you could make your dealings private, anyone and everyone could hit the link for the API and see all of your transactions. People use, usually use their real names. Um, you can see their profile pictures. You can see who they paid money. And so what I did is I basically abused that API and uh, got the data of over 200 million uh, public transactions um, that were all the public transactions of 2017. Like I said, creepy. Hung used the data she collected to explore the lives of five unsuspecting Venmo users. As you can imagine, people were pretty disgusted when they found out that Venmo had allowed this to happen. But in spite of this, the company didn't change the API they just slightly changed how it could be used. I feel the need to repeat that fact. People can still see your Venmo transactions. We still don't know why it was ever possible in the first place. So why aren't people more outraged? So I think if you just think about all the apps and services that you've um, signed up on, there's such a wealth of data just about you out there already. Um, and if you hear every few months um, about scandals that you know, data has been hacked, um, I feel like it really discouraged you to even care about this topic. This lack of interest in what happens to our data spurred Hung and her Mozilla teammates Rebecca Ricks and Ashlyn Sparrow to create Tracked. So we had players in this game who were users and who were trackers. And they had different sets of um, goals and challenges and missions to accomplish to basically survive online. Okay, I'm going to bring back producer Danielle to explain exactly how this works. Basically, on the Saturday of MozFest, they had about 45 trackers to 45 users. Each user and tracker had two sets of cards, so like Community Chest and Chance, but these were Go cards and Challenge cards. So these were different depending on whether you were a tracker or a user. If you were a user, a Go card lets you do things we all like doing online or, or can do online, so setting up a social media account, booking flights, or just reading an article. In that case, you could go to the tracker and see if they provide that service. In turn, however, the tracker, like it would online, will attempt to get your data by trying to advertise to you. So do you, is there like a physical representation of your data that you give to them then? Do you lose your cards or their tokens? In this case, users can then use their challenge cards. So the challenge cards let them know what information they can give and what information they're trying to save. So they can build up this kind of immunity. If we look at the digital transition, this means turning on an ad blocker or switching on your privacy settings. So for the game, you could use these stickers that you'd find in the fanny pack to indicate to the tracker that you've blocked certain data. Oh, okay, interesting. So is there like a winner and a loser in this game? It was funny because Hong explained that the winning tracker just 
shot out of the gate. Because a lot of people didn't know the rules that much or the strategies and how to navigate this game. A lot of people didn't really care about the immunities that much. This particular tracker went, I'll go straight to them, get their information quickly, and then they can deal with the repercussions after. And I just find that fascinating because that's what we do. It sounds like the real world and they ended up winning. So do people actually get really into this game then? Yeah, more so than the creators ever thought they would actually. And actually on Sunday we had a tie for two users between a mom and um, a young kid. He was 12 years um, and they broke their tie with a, a rock, paper, scissors game. So these players really went back to basics. But did they get the point of the game? Yeah, I think so. We had a little bit of feedback from people where they said like it, it was easier to play once they did the immunities first. In a way, it has to get worse first before people care. Um, that's kind of my opinion, uh, which is not really great, but I think that's probably the way it goes. While Hung acknowledges that Sir Tim Berners-Lee's campaign is definitely a start, she agrees with Marsa. The real power comes from the people. The player who won on Sunday, he was just 12 years old and the, another player actually was 13 years old. And, you know, they're really young and they're kind of the change makers of the future. And so I think definitely investing in, in young people and getting them engaged in this space, that's the thing for the future. I'd like to thank Masa Alimadani and Hung Doty Duck for joining me this week. There will be a link to both of their work on this week's episode description on the Guardian website. You know the drill at this stage, but if you have any questions or queries, email us at chipspodcast at theguardian.com. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.